It's Monday the 29th of July 2019. My name's Alex Elliott and you're listening to The Week in Iceland, the programme that asks what's been happening in Iceland this week, why it happened and why we should care. I'm joined this week by the linguist and Icelandic lecturer Jón Simon Markusson for only the second programme with uh, one guest. So congratulations, I guess, if that's the right way to put it. Um, This week we heard more details about the military upgrades that the United States and NATO are separately investing in at Keplavik and around the country. We learned who the controversial new choice for governor of the Central Bank of Iceland is. We found out that not everybody loves the idea of expanding Vatnajökull National Park to cover 85% of the highlands, although most people seem to. It could also be good to talk about um, Vestmannamalhelkin, which is coming up this weekend. And then there were two of the week's most read stories on Ruv English, the one about Okjökull and the plaque that will commemorate the now X glacier, Mm. and the one about the frogs that have been spotted (laughs) hopping around Gardabait. Honourable mentions should also be made to the new waste processing station that could see the end of domestic landfill early next year, the new types of loans proposed to stimulate house building outside the capital region, this weekend's ninth annual slut walk, and uh, the interviews that were done on Ruv with learners of Icelandic and and how Icelandic people could probably do better helping um, us foreigners. Mm -hmm. So, Jon, where would you like to start? Um... Didn't you say the frogs was the most read article this week? <laughs> oh, by far, it yeah. really was. Yeah. I mean, well, it's um, people running around kissing frogs all over Gala, but <laughs> I um, should say a few of the comments on that have been uh, they look more like toads to me, mm-hmm. uh, which apparently is true. And I don't think Icelandic always makes the distinction because no, but neither do neither does anyone really. I mean, well, it's the the distinction is not as clear cut as. Um, listen to me, <laughs> like an, an expert, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I welcome frogs, but I'm so obsessed with climate change at the moment that I see everything as a sign of, you know, things are getting warmer and, and uh, you know, frogs shouldn't be able to thrive in Iceland. I mean, it's true, they never have done before. No. But it could be various reasons. Isolated island, difficult to get them here. Maybe these were escaped pets, although no. not strictly allowed. They're, they're illegal, technically. Mm. Um, but if they managed to survive the winter, which it looks like they might have done, um, one of the experts quoted in news coverage said that that's not likely and they couldn't survive the winter. But I don't see how else they, how else, because this first came up two years ago. Exactly. So yeah. I don't know. Um, well, I really don't know. I mean, unless someone's kind of prankster running around putting frogs in people's gardens in Gardabaj, I don't see how they would have just appeared. You know, they must have. Uh, Maybe they've got a little warm enclave somewhere. They're sharing a, a, a den with a rabbit and uh, a squiggly that. Well, that is quite a sensible <laughs> idea, actually. You know, there's there's geothermal heat around. Mm-hmm. They could have a, a warmed pool or yeah. something. I mean, the, the, as far as I was aware, rabbits just about make it through the winter in, in Iceland. You mm. know, the ones that live in Öskjöldis. Um, it's not uncommon to find uh, dens of full of frozen rabbits that have just uh, not survived the, the cold. So, mm. I don't know, super frogs, Teflon frogs. And the, the rabbits are not native either, are they? No, no. But then... They're furry. They are furry. Yeah. Unlike toads mm-hmm. slash frogs. Yeah. Um and the mice as well, and Arctic foxes. Mm. It's all it's all tough. I believe the wintertime mortality rate for mice that live wild around mm. the country is about seventy five percent. Oh really? Yeah. yeah. 
So, and then half of the newborn Arctic foxes don't make it through their first winter, as was also reported this week, are because animal babies, the first year of life, the new BBC documentary features mm. heavily an Icelandic Arctic fox. Okay, uh, I need to buy a television. <laughs> yeah, uh, the summer sales are still on. You still got time. <laughs> yeah, uh, this frog slash toad story does fit quite well with the glacier story. Mm-hmm. Um. Tell us a bit. What, you read the plaque, right? I did read the plaque, and uh, I actually think it's quite a—it's a very poignant message. Or um, you know, it's directed at the future. Um, the future is probably a, a metaphor for for future generations. Um, I just—it's uh, it, extremely worrying. I think uh, this progression, mm. um, considering I think. I can't remember exactly the the number in years, but it's gone from fifty. Uh, is it fifty kilometers? No, fifteen kilometers deep. Ah, this particular glacier. It was. Walk. Yeah. <clears throat> it had fifteen square kilometers of ice that was more than fifty meters thick. Yeah. And today it has less than one square kilometer of ice, and it's about fifteen meters thick. Well, there you go. And therefore, has lost its title as a glacier. Yeah. Um, and it, it, this, you, you would hope that this would be a slap in the face to people that um, are still denying climate change, but um, it probably won't be. You know, I recently had a debate with someone um, unwillingly uh, with a very close friend of mine. I was quite shocked to, to learn that he was a, a climate change denier. That um, you know, you ask, do you deny climate change? And they say something like, "Well, why would I? It's always changed." You know, but they completely want to excise the influence of man out of it. Mm. Um, on what grounds they decide to not listen to experts, uh, climate scientists and, and uh, other experts, I don't know. Because it's easier. Well, of course, yeah. If if, if life carries on as normal, then that's easy. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Sometimes it has to do with political affiliation as well, you know, admitting that you maybe you were wrong to express support for someone that denies climate change. Mm. I think everyone believes in the greenhouse effect. The fact that without the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, we would freeze to death. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the amount of those gases must be important. And we also know that cars are putting out those exact gases, that none of that is controversial. Mm-hmm. So the link at which point that becomes blurry and fuzzy and, oh, maybe it's not human activity that's causing it, that's the bit I don't get, where that step no. is. Um, and... I go back to what I said before. I, I, I question on whose authority people make those decisions. But you used the word believe just a minute ago, and I think that's quite a, an important aspect of this. That you know, the, the, a lot of people that are they're expressing uh, or, or, or are climate change deniers, or at least want to deny the 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 end of man in, in in climate change. On what grounds do they? Um, a preponderance of what evidence have they? come to that conclusion you know mm. i'm not sure they're they're um qualified enough to to make such decisions or, or no to i mean such conclusions they're not they're they're going against more than 99 percent of the climate scientists in the world so exactly. and you defer to the experts right you should do yeah yeah but aren't we all fed up of experts or that's a quote <laughs> i've heard yeah. get rid of all of us <laughs> um yeah exactly <laughs> the uh, the uh, one argument i've heard is that oh it's just us you know, the, the planet is so big, nature is so big, how could we possibly have an effect? Mm. Yeah, I've heard that from crazy evangelical Christians in the US Senate, actually. Um, 
you know, the, the argument that only God can <laughs> affect the planet. Um, at what point do we start listening to, to delusional people? Mm. Um, and at what point do we, do we just turn them off? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, there we go. That's not exactly a debate we're having. It's just agreement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, should we move on to a different subject? Let us. I'd like to talk about the um, the uh, interview with the American and, and Swede. Canadian, I think. Oh, Canadian. No, 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 American. My bad. Sorry, I'm just being super sensitive. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it, the man was American and the the, the lady was uh, from Sweden. I think that's right. Um, because I've taught Icelandic now to to uh, non-native speakers or Icelandic as a second language for a long time, and of myself. Um, as you have as well, you know, gone through the, the put yourself through the paces of learning Icelandic. Um, I, I uh, empathise with their position. You know, I remember really trying my hardest to make myself understood in a bookshop or a bakery, and then being answered in English. Um, and in the beginning, you know, I just kind of deal with it. But after a little while, I started to give the people daggers, mm. really give them a filthy look, and and you know. Ask. Oh, I didn't realise I spoke to you first in in English. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. But um, what was your experience? Same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't come from a place of bad, you know, intent. It's often supposed to be a good thing. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But there is. See, one thing they spoke. I mean, where do I start? One thing that I've heard a lot as a teacher of Icelandic is that. Um, Icelandic is such a difficult language, and and you know why are you why are you bothering to learn such a uh, such a difficult language that hardly anyone speaks? Um, and we kind of need to eradicate this myth that Icelandic is unlearnable and it's just so difficult and there's no point in in, in uh, making the effort, you know, because there is. Mm. It's uh, such a beautiful language, um, and it's as as are all languages. But you know, if you live in this country, it's so. Um, you benefit so much from being able to communicate with Icelanders in Icelandic, read the news and, and read Icelandic literature, you know, which is one of the reasons that a lot of people come here. Um, it'd just be great if um, those Icelanders that are beholden to this, this myth that Icelandic is unlearnable, um, if they just stopped it mm. and were more encouraging. Interestingly, I would add to that that those Icelanders who say Icelandic is practically unlearnable, mm. they would find that it was very learnable and actually not that difficult if they would accept differences in accents and mm. and and uh, errors with um, conjugation. Yeah, exactly. I think that's where the the myth stems from. Um, Icelandic is, of course, a very highly inflected language and. I mean, don't get me wrong. I was beholden to this myth as well when I first started to learn the language. I remember thinking, "I'll just never, I'll never get there." Um, it wasn't actually until my former employer, Professor Ulvar Pragason, um, said once to a class of um, international students on the Icelandic summer course in the introduction, he said, "And I want you to remember this: Icelandic is not difficult; it's just different." And there was something I'd been so indoctrinated by this Icelandic is such a difficult language thing that I thought, oh, what does he mean? It's it's a very difficult language, you know. But I think it just the grammar is complicated, 
you know, but the grammar of lots of languages are complicated. Every language has grammar. Every language has its intricacies. Mm. Um, but I think it was it was quite on point when he said it's just different. Mm. You know, you have to work out what the differences are. You know, what are the mountains that you have to climb? Find the ropes and and pull yourself up. And it has its uh, advantages too. You know, it's it's regular spelling and pronunciation. The mm. many similarities from the other Germanic languages. Yeah. It's not that difficult. And and furthermore, you could incorrectly conjugate all the words and still mm. be understood. So it's not, it's not the be all and end all. Totally. And I actually find it quite interesting to to I've become very as a linguist I've become very interested in people's language errors, both native speaker errors and and uh, second language learner errors. Um, and I've tend I tend to find that even people's errors when they when they when they try to inflect um, are systematic in some way. You can see the logic behind it, you know. Mm. So I've kind of become interested in that as well. Um, but we need to encourage more and and get rid of this myth that Icelandic is unlearnable mm. because it's very learnable. Mm. And any Icelanders listening, don't don't be polite and answer in English when you think the other person's struggling. Mm. Carry on. Yeah, the struggle is on purpose. Totally. Yeah. Good. Okay. And to be fair, that that story came up this week, but it was not news. We all knew this. People mm. have been doing it for years, and it's it, it is a bugbear. Yeah, it's good that these two <clears throat> um, these two non-native speakers of Icelandic brought it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Next, there's the <coughs> central bank, the national park, etc., etc. How about the central bank? Mm, yes, nice and dry. <laughs> <laughs> so when I first read, um, I've only read one news story on this, um, and the thing that jumped out to me was it was that he was the son of a um, is it Oskar Jonsson was the son of I think Jon Bjarnason. Yes, who was uh, left greens. Um, politician and I thought right finally we're going to have you know someone with uh, left-wing human decency um, running uh, mm -hmm. and um, uh, but but then I then I've heard that there's there's been some criticism around surrounding um, his uh, his employment because of his activity before and and uh, around the the collapse of the banks in 2008. Um, so maybe my hopes were dashed. Yeah. It's a shame, and I guess somewhat inevitable, that he's going to start off with these accusations over his head of political um, um, hiring and, and favours mm. and uh, that he wasn't the best person for the job. That's a, that's a shame, isn't it? Because what we want from the central bank governor is complete impartiality, being above scrutiny, mm. a stable hand. Which I think Maur, the current one, has been Maur Gudmundsson. Yeah. He's done a good job, hasn't he? I've no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid to say. No. No. I'm very skeptical when it comes to 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 um, bank managers. Um, of course. Being a socialist. Mm. Yeah. Central bank governors, a different beast, which is why many years of experience in the private banking sector may not necessarily be. The be-all and end-all. No, well, I understand that he's a uh, head of the economics department at the University of Iceland. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's no surprise or coincidence that, that governments liaise with, with specialists in, in certain areas when they, when they need advice. You know, this would be someone that has spent 
an academic career surveying different economic systems and um, will be loaded with knowledge mm. uh, about the pitfalls and, and the um, different success stories and, and can hopefully apply that practically in the job. Um, mm. So that's I, I welcome that, you know. Hopefully left thinking and, and uh, knowledgeable. Can't really ask for much more. Indeed. Yeah, I mean, in this case, there were how many? Four applicants were deemed to be very well qualified. Mm. So any of them could have done the job. Yeah. Um, so let's hope that Alskair Johnson does a good job. Mm -hmm. And I guess playing devil's advocate, those that are saying that he played a role, too big of a role before the crash, should also point out that he played the same role after the crash mm. in Arion Bonki um, mm. and, you know, in helping to rebuild. Mm. So maybe that is useful experience on both sides of the um, yeah, the, the economic coin. Give the bloke a chance. Mm. I think um, it's not he's not quite Boris Johnson, you know. <laughs> yeah, it is <laughs> exactly. Okay, so yes, uh, cautiously optimistic. Yeah. How about um, the field Yes. The, uh, National Park. Yeah, uh, this seemed at first quite uncontroversial. All of the reaction. Mm given the certain the types of people that generally follow um, rural English, they're like, yeah, we welcome this. And the conversation about having most of the Highlands as a national park has been going on for years now. Mm. <clears throat> um, what's the what's the backlash been? Why are some people not happy? Um, I'm not sure, actually. I only heard that people weren't happy about it this morning. <laughs> so tell me. Uh, um, where was it? It was something to do with the uh, electricity, wasn't it? I think um, Samorka. That's yeah, okay. right. Okay. The head of Samorka says that before a national park can be expanded across most of the highlands, they need to think about um, energy for the future. Well, that's fine. Think about it and then expand. Is my answer. I'm, I, I mean, I, I, it didn't surprise me at all that, that it was a it was a popular idea. No, of course not. Um, I think. You know, this is something that um, I remember a few years ago. I don't know if this is the same project or the same um, initiative, but uh, Björk and, and Andres Neir mm. uh, were, you know, campaigning for um, protection of the Icelandic wilderness. And, um, you know, it, it, it's one of the last stretches. I mean, it, it's one of the last um, unspoiled um stretches of, of nature in, mm. in I don't know about in the world I'm not really up on my um, certainly in Europe in Europe yeah mm. and I think it should just be left as it is you know we've done enough um, to to tilt things in in, in, in negative directions so um, you know and I've had conversations about this where people say well you I mean when have you ever been up there like you know how many people go up there and look at these look at the entire thing uh, it doesn't matter. It don't matter. The fact that it exists and the fact that people are thinking about it and the fact that people are thinking about preserving it and want to preserve it is a positive thing, I think. And people do, lots of people mm. do visit. Yeah. Of course they do, yeah. yeah. Even if you just go once. Mm -hmm. That's a once-in-a-lifetime thing that could never happen if it wasn't there. Exactly. Uh, on the electricity side, though, you know, we do have growing energy demands mm. and we are not about to start using fossil fuels to generate electricity so it's probably going to have to come from 
hot spring areas and or rivers, mm. of which there are plenty in the Highlands. Mm. <clears throat> Sorry. So once a national park is established, that's it then. Basically, you can't then go and build in there. Yeah. So maybe he has a point. Yeah. 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 I mean, this is something that we need to think about. It's not going to happen tomorrow. Mm. People have to think about it, and um, but then expand to the extent that it's possible. You know, maybe if they leave a couple of areas out or mm. uh, demarcate something that can be tapped for for energy. I don't know. Mm. Or we just get everything. Delta tunku Yes. You could argue that we already have enough power and that if they closed down one aluminium smelter, we'd have plenty. And I would argue that. You know, I'm such a socialist. I want everyone to go off grid. Uh, <laughs> what yeah. about the jobs? About the jobs. Sort the jobs. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. So the environment's important. We agree on that. Very much so. But jobs are important too. They are. They are. But they're, you know, they. The nature of, of work, the nature of employment is only um, <clears throat> determined by uh, the financial, the economic system that is in place. Um, you know, that's changing a lot. Um, automated services are putting people out of work and we're going to have to start thinking about, we're going to have to be very in innovative, mm. uh, probably in the near future when it comes to employment, the nature of employment, the nature of the economy, um, how we generate capital and, and also people's well-being and their, you know, um, life-to-work ratio. I mm. think uh, that we could make changes there for the better. I do think that if the economy is still generating the same amount of money, the same amount of income, mm. it shouldn't really matter how many people are employed in making that happen. No. If, if all of this money, this good is coming in, it could still be distributed. Yeah, from a top-down uh, from the top-down perspective. Um, but there is the bottom-up um, dynamic as well. Mm. Yeah. Is that what where we all build our own robots to replace us at work? <laughs> That's where we go off-grid. Right. Yeah. Mm. On a related subject, you could say, um, certainly on the energy side, uh, Sorpa has announced that their new um, waste processing plant, which will come on tap, if, I don't know if that's the right word, <laughs> be switched on um, early <laughs> next year, could see the end of practically all domestic waste going to landfill. Yeah. That took me by surprise when I saw that last week. Oh, this, they've been keeping that under a bushel. Mm. And it's apparently by early next year. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they've been building it. The capital area councils, municipalities, decided back in 2010 that this is what they were going to do. Mm. And that 2020 was their target. And okay. it looks like it's going to happen. Positive. Mm. Um, I mean, and that's everything, basically, from the, you know, that we throw away in the kitchen, that we put into the bin. Yeah, they're saying, like, uh, the, the, the separating of waste that we currently do should continue. Mm -hmm. But then everything that goes into the grey bin, the, the everything else bin that mm. goes to landfill, they are then going to sort that further. Mm -hmm. once it goes to this place. So organic material and all sorts of hygiene products and things will go to the gas and composting facility, which will produce methane uh, that can be used for cars and buses and things, and also to be made into fertilisers and compost. Does that mean that we don't have to um, flocka um, anything other than 
bottles and cans and, and mm, I think they would no I don't think so because that's what they're talking about is just doing the, I, I'm sorry I think they're working on current amounts mm. so if everyone stopped sorting what they're already sorting then the overall amount would skyrocket and they'd have to double the size of the facility no I mean I mean um, so we continue to 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 sort uh, glass bottles, plastic bottles, and, and, and cans, right? mm. aluminium cans. But beyond that, we just take a bag full of a mixture of stuff from mm. domestic waste, and then it gets sorted at Sotopa. Yeah. Okay. But those of us, I know not everyone's able to or has the facilities at their home, but a lot of people do, that they're already separating um, paper and card. Mm -hmm. And paper and card? Yeah. And some people are doing organic waste as well. That will continue okay. because they they don't want to see a rise in the overall volume. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, and interestingly, we currently don't have metal separate metal bins no. because they're already taking that out and separating it there. Okay, and that does get recycled. Okay, already. Well, that's apparently. positive. It's mm. Positive. The less landfill, the better. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the only major exception to that, obviously. It's just domestic at this stage. They will hopefully expand it to businesses um, as time goes on, but that's more difficult, especially the construction industry. Mm. Um, massive amounts of waste go to landfill from construction, and they don't see an end to that because it's just it's too messed up. Mm -hmm. Which I suppose you can understand. Yeah. Okay. There we go. So yeah, positive. Mm -hmm. Anything else? <clears throat> about honorable mention. Have we made honorable mentions? Honorable mentions. I'd like uh, to thank the academy. <laughs> yeah. um, house building outside the capital. Yeah, that's interesting. And the slot walk as well. That's also interesting. Yeah. So, um, well, let's look. Talk about this. I haven't been to the slot walk for a few years, um, but um, I think it's uh, very important. I do. Um, yeah. Indeed. You know, I've heard a lot of opposition to it among. Uh, well, I won't say among any kind of demographic, but I think uh, it's very easy to to it, it kind of harks back to the you know oh, why do we need to talk about this um, kind of thing, and I think it's actually this you know the movement if we if we think about this as as aligned with the Me Too movement as mm -hmm. well, um, it's got a lot of people, including you know particularly men, thankfully, including me and including men that I know to think about you know past behavior um, and the only way the only way that we can that we can get people to think about the mm, maybe the power they wield um, in certain situations is is by I don't necessarily want to say in your face but being affronted by it you mm. know and being affronted by our, our own actions um, and the stuff that we take for granted yeah, definitely. And the issue of the way a woman dresses or the way she comes forth, the way she acts, having mm. no bearing on her right to not be assaulted. Yeah. I mean, it's quite a basic message, isn't it? It is quite a basic message, but unfortunately the, the, the old, you know, well, look at what she's wearing, you know, boys will be boys, is still quite pervasive. Um, both abroad and and in, in Iceland mm. you know um, I mean I just a few months ago I had someone in, a, in a, I was having a conversation about this with someone in a pub and they said um, 
they dress like Russian prostitutes and so what do they expect? Whatever that means, whatever Russian prostitutes dress like, you know. It's clear um, discrimination and prejudice, but... And what? You know, I remember this... Uh, like a, a picture that I saw on uh, social media of a woman who wasn't wearing anything on top and and uh, on, on uh, across her breasts it was the words... Uh, still not asking for it and that's kind of that's it right you mm. know it doesn't matter yeah. what a woman wears or whether she wears anything don't presume you, anything you're not going to ask the guy at the back of the bar wearing camo to protect you because it's not in the army mm. it's not what you wear isn't related to anything. exactly someone yeah. that dresses a bit funny isn't necessarily funny mm -hmm. yeah yeah uh, what about this year's event? What do we know about it? Was it bigger or about the same size as last year? I well, know you said you didn't go to it. No, I, I haven't. Uh, I've seen pictures. Guests over the weekend, so I haven't really uh, stayed abreast of, of uh, the most recent stuff. But um, I don't know. Um, mm. I hope it was bigger and I hope there was... Um, I just hope it was bigger and it was successful and that long may it continue. Absolutely. Um Ninth year in a row. Mm -hmm. It started in Canada, didn't it? In in Toronto. Yeah. Um, with a police chief there basically saying what we've just been saying, that mm. maybe if they dressed differently, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. And the backlash from that was so huge. Yeah. And it, it went around the whole world. And yeah. Hopefully things are changing as a result. Or as a part, this is one small chain, one mm. small link in the wider Me Too movement. I think... I honestly think attitudes are changing slowly but surely, particularly among um, the young, uh, younger people. I mean, I'm on the cusp of, you know, young and middle-aged. <laughs> I'm 38. But um, like I said, it's it's this movement has affected me. It's affected people that I know. Um, and, you know, if we can get to a point where we can say to each other, are we both involved in this? Are we both 100% in this together, right? If we can just ask that question, mm. um, and I, you know, then then a lot of things would change. And I think the Me Too movement, slut walks, and and just the general debate will get us eventually to will change a lot of minds. Mm. Yeah, it's had a strong uh, a strong emphasis on sexual abuse, uh, but what about sexual harassment? Mm. That's a far in many ways, easier to make excuses for thing, which is no less uncomfortable, is it? So. No, it's not. And and um, this, the old... I remember when I first moved to Reykjavik in, in 2003, people walking around with um, T-shirts, and, and on the T-shirts it said, nay. Uh, I couldn't actually understand Icelandic at the time, but I assume it, the message was no means no, right? Um, but that's also quite a dangerous message, you know? I mean we want to kind of educate people so that they don't get to the point where mm. um, the person that they're interested in or pursuing has to blurt out, no, you know, mm. I mean, it'd be great if we didn't get to that point. And we can all, we can all learn from that, you know, uh, particularly men. Um, and that message has evolved. I think that definitely. the slogan was re replaced. Uh, some thicky as sexy was one, mm -hmm. which is some thicky as sexy. Okay, was yeah, one yeah. that I think replaced that very kind of literally. It was also on T-shirts a few years later. Yeah, and that is it. You know, okay. um, consent is sexy. Yeah, 
that's a different um, take on the same message, and yeah, more progressive, like you say. Yeah, but the, the, that old message was 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 you know pretty pretty dangerous, and it, it, I think it, it was a very grey because um, people were the, of the attitude that well, as long as as long as the person doesn't say no, I'm not doing anything wrong, you know, and like I said, a lot of people that I know, possibly including myself, have, have been beholden to that old message, you know. And we've got a lesson. We've got a, a, a lesson to learn. Mm. Definitely, been well, a wake up call for a lot of people. Yep, indeed. There we go. Uh, we've had a good run of it, but I'm afraid the program has run its course. Uh, we're going to have to say goodbye. The week in Iceland is taking two weeks off, unfortunately, but we will, will return to roof.is forward slash English, Roof English on Facebook, to the Roof app, and as a podcast, including on Spotify, on Monday afternoon, the 19th of August. For now, it's thanks to my guest, Jon Simon Markusson. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we like to finish the show with the number one song on the Raus Tour chart. And this week, for the second time in a row, it is Hjalteline with Love From 99. Bye for now. It's morning and we're blue Cause what happened all night through Was made for me and you And now it's gone there's a certain kind of love That will show us the way So when your lips meet mine I know I'll ask And will you take me just this time I know I'll find This time, I know I'll find, I know I'll find Love from 99 We've got the feeling right in time, drifted by What kind of fool am I To let the world go by and lose another smile With every kiss and now I feel the mist It's time for love from 99 We got to dream a life but we had to say goodbye I catch myself away The bed is empty by my side once again So I travel back in time To another century That was made for you and me Where I say Another smile What kind of lips were those Who lied with every kiss And now I feel the miss It's time for love
say goodbye.